0: From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, and this morning we start with Gabe Bowen. He's a professor of geology and geophysics at the University of Utah. He'll discuss how geoscientists have mapped changes in atmospheric CO2 over the past 66 million years. And then our very own John Wells, co-host of Cool Science Radio for the last decade, will join us to talk about his time hosting this science and technology show and what he has learned and loved as he departs the show for new endeavors. That's all coming up this hour. Stay with us, we'll be back after this.
1: Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Malali, And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Although 800,000 years may seem like a long time, when it comes to measuring important data, like CO2 levels, 800,000 years is just a blink of an eye. In order to gain a better understanding of the changes in CO2 levels and their fluctuations over geologic time, geoscientists have now been able to go back 66 million years. But why is it important to measure CO2 levels over such a long span of time? And how do the current CO2 levels of 419 parts per million fit in Earth's history? To answer this and many more questions is Gabe Bowen, a geology professor at the University of Utah and a corresponding author of the recent study Mapping Changes in Atmospheric CO2 over the past 66 million years. Gabe, welcome to Cool Science Radio.
2: Thank you, pleasure to be here.
1: Using traditional methods, which the geoscientists have done in the past, which include gas bubbles and glaciers, they only go back 800,000 years, but CO2 levels have changed throughout the course of time. So how is your team able to go back 66 million years without glacial data?
2: Yeah, we have to um, be a bit creative, really. The ice core record is amazing, um, and it has been super valuable in learning about uh, changes in the atmosphere over the recent parts of Earth's history, recent for us geologists, so, and those are getting pushed back. Uh, It's tricky, tricky work, but folks are now finding chunks of ice in Antarctica that are two to three million years old, and those are, uh, you know, also a very exciting addition to the geologic record. But really, if we want these longer term records that show us some of the crazy things that have happened in Earth's history um, and, and really fascinating uh, time periods in the past. We have to use indirect evidence. We don't have those samples of the atmosphere that are locked up in the ice bubbles available to us anymore. And we have to look at things that are, um, that are indirect recorders that we call proxies. So these are features that we can see in the rock record. We can recover, measure, quantify in different ways. That are affected by atmospheric chemistry they're affected by the co2 levels in the atmosphere and therefore give us an indirect recording
1: the team that you were on built a lot of your research based around u of u professor tori serling's earlier work can you tell us more about his work and how it laid the foundation for your proxies
2: we really have i think in, in this paper, in the study, we use four primary different kinds of proxies, four kinds of indirect evidence, and um, Turi's work was pivotal in establishing one of those four methods. It's a great example. So this method focuses on minerals that grow in soils. Soils all around us. There are these. We we don't. They're all around us. We don't typically. Uh, think about what's going on down there in the subsurface and the soils um, Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis, but they're really active environments. And one of the things that happens in many soils is the growth of new minerals, including calcium carbonate, limestone, chalk, right? And uh, that in many places grows within soils. And the chemistry of that material tells us about the the carbon dioxide in that soil. And so Turi's work showed that we can take ancient soils that are locked up in the rock record, preserved in the rock record. We can measure the chemistry of those carbonate minerals, and it tells us uh, how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. It can tell us how much CO2 is in the atmosphere.
0: If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with University of Utah Geology Professor Gabe Bowen. He's talking to us about how CO2 in the atmosphere has been measured over time, more recent time and farther back time going to 66 million years ago and recent time would be then less than a million years is that right Gabe
2: yeah we can define these things in various different ways but one way I like to think uh, about it is um really the time that we know and have experienced as a species humans have only been around on the earth for you know Homo sapiens our species has only been around for a few hundred thousand years and so you know, the window of time that we've seen, that we've experienced, that we are adapted to in geologic timescales is really just a, a tiny, tiny blip. What we're able to do with these longer records is look back at conditions, the broader range of conditions that go beyond what our species is familiar with.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd like to go deeper into these proxies, but first I'd like to sort of define for our listeners to make it clear What we're measuring, we're measuring parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. So where we stand today is 420 parts per million. Where we started, when the industrial age began and we started burning fuels, it was about 280 parts per million, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. To put that in other terms, we've
2: seen a a 50% increase, right, since we started burning fossil fuels.
0: So yeah, that's, that's incredible Um, go. And then going back to the earliest dates that you were able to measure through these proxies, CO2 in the atmosphere, what were those parts per million? If we look at
2: the whole record we've reconstructed, you know, one of the things that we see, which is not surprising from a, a geologist standpoint is that the total range of values we've reconstructed over 66 million years, is far greater than what we've seen in the recent record. So the highest values that we estimate for the warmest parts of this time period are around 1,200 parts per million. So that's, you know, three times as much as we have today.
1: Well, Gabe, when you look at those numbers, the 1200 parts per million, what were the conditions on earth to lead to such a high level? Do you know?
2: Yeah, so this requires additional evidence, additional kinds of uh, you know, proxy data and direct evidence. But just like we have these proxies that allow us to reconstruct CO2 levels, we have others that allow us to reconstruct temperature. Um, and we can put the two together. You know, what we see is that at these times in the, the deep past when CO2 levels were very high, uh, temperatures were dramatically hotter than they are today or than they have been at any point during you know human history we're talking about, you know, global, uh, surface temperatures on the order of 10 or 12 degrees centigrade higher than today. Um, wow. to put that in context, you know, the global warming that we've talked about, the climate change that has been documented with thermometers, uh, since the start of the industrial revolution is around one or 1. 1.2 degrees, uh, centigrade. So, Far in excess of that, ten times as large.
1: Yeah, that's a big that's a big increase. Well, can you um, attribute? Can you find anything in, ge- in the geologic record, like volcanoes or any sort of other processes that would have led to those higher CO two levels?
2: Yeah, these are really interesting questions and um, subject of a lot of study and, and you know a um, lot of interest uh, right now. Yeah, I mean there are a lot of things that were different and and you know to be completely honest we don't know the full suite of factors you know, that, that control these longer-term changes, but a lot of it comes down to tectonic processes, so these really slow, long time scale processes which move the continents around, uh, cause ocean basins to spread and shrink. At these warmest time intervals, uh, there are time intervals that correspond with periods of lots of volcanism on Earth, so big igneous provinces in the North Atlantic, potentially spewing a lot of gases into the atmosphere. There are uh, also time periods when we think that the mountain ranges on the planet were not as high and kind of profound as they are today. And uh, when we have really uh, abrupt kind of high topographic plateaus like the Tibetan Plateau or the Andes, we know that you know geologically, geochemically, that tends to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. So we think since, since these really warm times about 50 million years ago, Part of what's been going on is is the uplift of these high plateaus has pulled CO2 out of the atmosphere.
1: How come in this study you went back 66 million years ago, and I know that you're part of the Phanerozoic CO2 proxy integration project. And the intention with that project is to go back 539 million years. So why did you, I don't want to say stop at 66 million years, but why why did you stop at 66 million
2: years? <laughs> Good question. So when we look further back in time, we already talked about the contrast between the ice core records and the work that our group was doing longer term. So we move from having good direct evidence from ice cores to having to rely on indirect evidence from proxies. The further we go back in time, the more indirect uh, and the less available information we have. So the 66 million year record, which we published in this study, covers the age of mammals. Uh, We call it the Cenozoic. It's the extinction of the dinosaurs up till today. And so it's a convenient period of time to look at because we know a lot about what was going on biologically. We have good ocean sedimentary records, so rocks and sediments deposited in the ocean, which we can access and get these records out of, as well as the continents. The further we go back in time, the more different things get and the more information we lose so for example i think a lot of folks don't realize the seafloor is constantly being recycled and destroyed in subduction zones in places like the west coast of the us or uh, off of off of japan and that means that the ocean records that we can get as geologists only go back so far Um, the oldest ocean crust is about 140 million years old and so we lose access to records And we also are dealing with situations which are less and less similar to today. And so those are a couple of reasons that we don't go back, haven't gone back further already.
0: So if we look at the ice core samples that provide direct evidence versus indirect evidence through these proxies, we still have glaciers. Are you still able, you know, what are you still able to find? Although glaciers have receded dramatically, are you saying now that you've lost that ability to study from air bubbles trapped in the glaciers or is it ongoing?
2: Well, I think, uh, you know, today, uh, we continue to have ice forming in cold regions of Antarctica. And so there is an ongoing record, the, the high CO2 levels, elevated CO2 levels that humans have caused are being recorded in those new ice records. But just like, you know, I just mentioned the ocean floor, very analogous, glacial ice only sticks around for so long. Um, It flows out to the margins of Antarctica or Greenland um, and mountain glaciers. Uh, It flows down the mountain and ultimately it's destroyed. It's melted or lost to the atmosphere. And so, you know, the limit on the ice core records is really how long that ice persists before it's melted uh, away and we lose the record that it contains. The geologic record, the rocks, they stick around for a lot longer depending on where they are, uh, the oceans, the continents.
0: Okay, so then speak, you, you mentioned four types of indirect evidence or proxies. And one of those was discovered by, as you say, Tori Sterling and from the University of Utah. And that was with regard to soils and what you could find from minerals and things like that. What are the other types of proxies?
2: Yeah. So three of these proxies are geochemical, right? They're chemical measurements that we can make on geological materials. And the soil mineral one is is one of those. The other two are from ocean materials, chemical measurements made on the shells uh, produced by foraminifera. They're little protists that grow in the ocean and produce these beautiful calcium carbonate limestone shells. Um, Very, very small though. Not what you think of when you think of a, a marine shell the other uh, marine one is uh, based on the chemistry the isotope chemistry of organic molecules produced by algae in the oceans Uh, those get deposited in sediments and preserved and we can extract them and and measure their chemistry and then the fourth method is one that uh, really focuses on on land plants and just on their their morphology on the shape of their leaves or the structure of their leaves this is a really interesting one if you think about what a leaf does A leaf is there for photosynthesis, to produce biomass, produce organic molecules, organic compounds for the plant to grow, and it produces those organic compounds uh, from CO2 from the atmosphere. And to do that, it has to get CO2 in to the inside of the leaf so it can build its organic tissues from that CO2. And so in order to do that, plants, the leaves of plants have all these tiny little pores on them called stomata. They're just little holes, and they are like a window into the plant where, when the window is open, the CO2 can come in, and the breeze can blow in, and the plants can get access to CO2. So when there's a lot of CO2 in the air, the plants don't need as many of those little holes um, in order to get the CO2 they need, and they don't produce as many. So this other method, this fourth method, really just involves taking fossil leaves of plants that you get out of rocks or out of sediments, looking at them, and counting the number of holes, the number of stomata.
1: Wow, it's amazing how many areas you can find the data that you need. Well, Gabe, how will you use these paleo CO2 records for humans today going forward?
2: Yeah, I think they provide us, well, they provide a number of things, Um, but I I guess I would emphasize two. One is kind of maybe more esoteric and philosophical, and you know, as a geologist, uh, it's really interesting to look back at the history of our planet and see how profound and diverse it is there are all kinds of crazy things that have happened over geologic history and and what we know as a species what we've seen what we've experienced directly is just a tiny sliver um, of what's possible on this planet and so having these records of how atmospheric chemistry has changed being able to relate them geologic processes, to climate, to evolution. It provides us a lot of context for where we are as a species today, for what our planet looks like today. So, you know, I think that some people would look at this study and say, CO2 was 1200 ppm 50 million years ago. We have nothing to worry about. So from the standpoint of the planet, I think that's probably true. We know the planet can deal with profound CO2 levels, right, Uh, much higher than they are today or likely will be in the near future. However, I think the other thing that our study offers us is, again, kind of thinking about the context for our species, those conditions, those CO2 levels, temperature conditions are not something that we are familiar with. They're far outside of what we've seen as a species, and they will shape our planet in ways that are very, very different than what we're used to and would require really profound adaptations of us as a species and as a society. So I think we can look at those time periods in the past when CO2 levels were very different, uh, much higher than today and get a sense for what that would involve, what that would look like and whether that's something that we're really ready to adapt to. Gabe,
1: how do you take this data that's going that shows that CO2 levels were almost three, four times as high And use that for, you know, climate deniers are going to come up and say, like you just said earlier, well, look, it's been much higher. And that was a natural process. How do you counteract that? Because I can see people using this data against climate scientists.
2: I mean, there's nothing here that contradicts anything that climate scientists are saying. You know, folks who understand the geologic record know and freely admit that uh, CO2 levels have been much higher than they are today. But, you know, again, I would emphasize that what we see is that when that happens, the world is a very different place. At that point in time, we I gave the number 12 degrees C. But in a more kind of visceral sense, we had palm trees growing at the edge of Antarctica. We had alligators down there, right? So this was a crazy different world. No ice on any of the poles. Sea levels were dramatically higher than they are today. It's, you know, the kind of thing that you know, if it were to happen today, if we were moved back into that kind of a planet, it would be dramatically different and stressful to us and acquire, you know, profound adaptation. I think the other thing to emphasize too is, is an issue of rate and, and uh, how quickly things change. And this is hard to resolve in these longer geologic records, like the one we were looking at. It's hard to know exactly how quickly things changed when we're looking at events that happened, you know, tens of millions of years ago. But, you know, the other thing that I would say is if we are moving back into a situation where we have very high CO2 levels, very warm climate conditions, like what we saw 15 or 30 or 50 million years ago, it's not gonna take, humans doing it, it's not gonna take 15 or 30 or 50 million years for this to happen. We're talking about changes now that are happening on generational time scales, your life, my life. You know, we've seen this happen and it's happening even faster in our child's futures. We're exacerbating things where we are moving towards a very, very different set of climate conditions and we're doing it much faster than we really have examples of in the geologic past
0: yeah i mean again looking at some of these numbers at the beginning of the industrial revolution 280 parts per million today 420 parts per million and then if you're looking at these studies and projecting into the future like you said it's in one generation i mean in another 75 years parts per million of co2 in the atmosphere are projected to be 600 to one thousand now that one thousand is getting awfully close to what you saw you know 50 million years ago 1200 parts per million and that makes it a very very different planet as you say how much fluctuation is anticipated how much change can we affect as humans i think what
2: we've already seen is we can do a lot and those projections that you mentioned 600 a thousand in 75 years. I mean, the interesting thing about those is they're entirely dependent on our decisions and on what we do. Whatever anybody's speculation is about temperatures, it, it is it's unquestionable. It's it's dramatically clear that you know what's happening with CO2 in the atmosphere right now is due to us burning fossil fuels and you know changing landscapes. And you know, we could theoretically stop that today and never get past 420, 420 ppm. If that's what we choose to do. whether you know, I'm not going to say if that's the right thing to do or not, but it's something we could do, right? Or we could double down and we could see 1,200 ppm by the end of the century. It is possible. We can do it. And so, yeah, there, there's, you know, we have, we have got a lot of power, a lot of influence on the system at this point. Um, and it's the decisions that we make really in the next few decades that are going to govern where we end up on that spectrum and what part of this geologic record that we've reconstructed we end up living in
0: so in contrast or contrary to katie's comment about how climate change deniers might use this study against (laughs) climate science and you say this is consistent with everything that climate scientists are finding I feel like this is an explanation of where we don't want to go. And it provides curious lay people with a better background of why it used to be hotter. There used to be more CO2 in the atmosphere. What could you say in wrapping up this conversation that what's your hope for people like our listeners of Cool Science Radio to really educate themselves on? I mean, I'm grasping what you're talking about here. And I would assume our listeners are.
2: I mean, I think having a sense for what the stakes are is important. And I think that in this work, we were able to, to show, yes, there's a wide range of CO2 levels, which are possible and which we've seen before, but they're really closely coupled with changes in climate. Also with changes in ecosystems, so as we go back to these higher CO2 levels, it's not just temperature that's changing. It's the water cycle, uh, how strong storms are in different places, and what the landscape looks like. One interesting thing, uh, you know, that we saw is if we go back about 15 million years ago in this record, which is the last time that we think CO2 levels on the planet were as high as they are today. Not 50 years in the future, but today. That point in time was really the first time in the geologic record where uh, grassland ecosystems evolved. So savannas, like we think of in tropical Africa, grasslands, like the great plains of the United States, Canada. These are the ecosystems that we, that our species evolved in. They're the ecosystems that in some ways are most natural to us uh, as a habitat um, for our species. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that you put it very nicely, Lynn, as we go back through this record, we can almost take these different periods of geologic history and think of them as potential futures, possible futures that, you know, depending on where we set our targets, where we end up, uh, in terms of CO2 levels in the future, these provide us a a window into, or a a look at what our world might look like under those conditions. Uh, And so it's then up to us to take that information and process it and hopefully, ideally, use it to make informed decisions about our energy systems, our future as a society. Hopefully. Well, Gabe,
1: one more Park City-related question. You graduated from the University of Michigan in 1999. Did that mean that you got to come out to the Park City and Utah area for your summer field camp?
2: <laughs> How did you know that? Yes, uh, yes, it did. Uh, we,
1: I see them every, well, we see them every summer. Those nice. kids are just roaming around town and it's really fun to see all of you that come from the flatlands to well, this not- geologic playground.
2: Not to reignite a, a debate, which at this time of year, during the ski season is, is vigorous, but um, we actually did our work at Alta um, when we were out here up in the Albion Basin. It was beautiful.
1: Well, Professor Gabe Bowen, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio to talk about your role in the study of the atmospheric changes of CO2 levels over the past 66 million years. It's
0: a lot of great information. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. Just over a decade ago, Cool Science Radio was launched as a way to bring science and technology to lay people. John Wells at that point was a relative newcomer to town and a very science curious person. He started the show along with me as his co-host. And after a decade, he is ready to move on to new endeavors. We'll really miss him. So we thought we'd bring him on today and interview him about all of the guests we've talked to over a decade. John Wells, better known as JW, welcome to Cool Science Radio.
3: I am delighted to be here.
0: (laughs) Well, we're delighted to have you, and I especially, since you've been my sidekick for a decade, I'm really going to miss you. And Katie has stepped into your shoes and has been wonderful, and I think she borrows some of the passion that you have i shouldn't say borrows the passion she has the same passion that you have for science so that's really great talk to us about how you got involved with kpcw
3: well when i moved uh to park city utah from boston i knocked on uh, the door and and spoke to larry he was our general manager president and told him i had a passion for music i'd met randy barton uh, previously uh, maybe a couple of days earlier and Larry gave me gave me a stint as a DJ and I started doing that and in a couple of weeks i think bob dylan turned 70 he's now 80 something i i put together a 1 hour show on all of his albums and what they meant and you know this this progression for dylan so Larry asked me if I wanted to uh, co-host uh, as a guest host on some of the public affairs shows after seeing that. So I did. And slowly over time, he uh, he gave me my own show. And we were doing Community Voices together, which was New York Times bestselling authors. And that was a good show. But I remember talking to you about, about science and about how it was being beaten up and that it was getting sort of a bad name. And maybe we could put something together that would you know, shine a bright light on these incredible women and men in science and, and what they're doing. And then Larry asked me, what would you do to improve community voices? And I said, why don't we just blow it up and have a science show? You and I have been doing it ever since. And now, Katie, it's it's really exciting.
0: It really is exciting. And it's funny, it was an unintended tagline that we came up with that we still use <laughs> 10 years later which is if we can understand it so will you That's and that, right. started, that started off with a joke didn't it because it did. sometimes we were talking to you know quantum physicists about stuff that even they have a difficulty explaining and so how did you go about grasping these really difficult topics
3: well, I don't know. I think I'm I'm just wired that way for more of a big picture. I can't really get into the weeds, into the detail. I wasn't an engineer, but I was able to, you know, get my arms around. I, I always try to understand what the gist of something was and then kind of go from there. And, you know, I ask a lot of questions, too. I'm just kind of a little bit on the curious side.
1: If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio our guest is john wells otherwise known as jw the previous co-host for Cool science radio for the past 10 years he's here to tell us about what he loved about the show and his experiences on it so jw yeah first of all thank you for creating some really big shoes to fill being able to step into what you've already created as lynn's co-host made it easy but yet challenging what will you miss most about cool science radio well
3: there were a lot of uh moving pieces to the show you know we lynn and i were both hosting and we were also producing. So we would have to get the guest and we would have to confirm them and there were schedule changes and sometimes there were problems with technology and those sorts of things. And of course, we had to prepare for the show as well. But the thing that I will absolutely miss more than anything was every Thursday morning, I came in with my dog Porkchop. He would sit in the car and come into the studio. And for 56 minutes, I would sit across from Lynn And we would talk about these these subjects that we were so fascinated by and interested in learning more about. And it was akin to being in a kitchen, uh, around the kitchen table with a cup of coffee, just having a conversation. And Lynn and I, we uh, we just loved it.
1: And we all loved hearing you and i know a lot of us know that your favorite topic over the years has been nasa and space and so we can guarantee if there was any sort of upcoming space topic you would cover it but over the last 10 years was there a topic or a scientist that you interviewed that really surprised you that you were thinking oh that's not going to be that interesting however you walked away going wow
3: yeah i i think that happened a lot and um one recently this past year was dr russell foster who runs the circadian rhythm institute at oxford university there hasn't been as much research on circadian systems as there is now and he is one of the foremost authorities and it was just a a really good conversation to understand that not only do we have this little piece in our brain that is the central clock for everything but every piece of bacteria, every human cell that we have also has a clock and communicates with the central clock and through the entire animal kingdom, including the entire plant and fungi and everywhere in the world where there is life and something growing, it all runs off a clock.
0: When any of the listeners of Cool Science Radio or the the (laughs) co-hosts hear an interview, we always try to apply it to our own lives. And so how did that particular topic on circadian rhythms, how did you incorporate that into the way you conduct your life?
3: Well, it was a big game changer for me. I had recently moved to an island called Newcastle Island off the coast of New Hampshire. And there was a time zone change uh, in Park City. I was living at 7,200 feet. Now I'm living at sea level. There were all sorts of changes, and for some reason, my circadian rhythm was out of whack, and I was waking up at uh, 2.30 and 3 o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't get back to sleep. So Dr. Foster and I are exchanging emails, and and we actually became friends. And a couple days before the interview, I said, Dr. Foster, can you help me get to sleep? And he said, yeah, sure. So he told me this light that I should buy and how much morning light I should be receiving versus afternoon light and he said just do this for five or six days and it will push your circadian rhythm forward and you will uh, you're going to be okay well three or four days later I'm back in the saddle you know I'm waking up at seven o'clock in the morning so so that helped me
0: yeah by all means that's great that's a great story you know, I think of other people who have sort of become your your friends, these experts from really around the globe during the 10 years of producing and hosting Cool Science Radio. And one really sticks out for me, and that's Dr. Dahlia Kirschbaum. She works with NASA with the Global Precipitation Measurement. Yeah. And you really struck up sort of a friendship with her, and she came on our show, I don't know, five times or something like that.
3: She also came on The Future in Review. It was really nice getting to know her. I mean, she was responsible for a constellation of satellites. And these satellites not only informed us of of weather patterns. And I mean, the one satellite was the size of a school bus and did CAT scans of hurricanes. They also helped farmers around the world because NASA shares all their data with everybody to tell them, Uh, where they should be planting their crops and when they should be planting them and those sorts of things. So, you know, NASA really performs a a tremendous service. I remember in the 1980s, early 80s, working for NASA, not, I wasn't working for NASA, I was working for a technology company that was selling computers to NASA. And all the computers that we were selling them were being used for what they call Earth sciences, studying our home planet. And about 20% of NASA's budget goes towards trying to understand what our planet's all about you know that's that's money well spent
1: so as the founder and co-host of cool science radio it's very apparent that you are a firm believer in science literacy and being able to understand why do you think that's so important and what happens if we don't understand science what do you think we miss out on
3: well, I think that innately part of our humanness is our curiosity and and our desire to understand our world around us, and and that includes exploration. And I think that that's sort of maybe baked into our DNA. It's just one of those things that that has that has informed me. I mean, I'm just a very curious person, and I like to you know learn about this stuff. I guess.
1: So how will you stay engaged with science and technology now that you've moved on? this is obviously well, a great way to force yourself into reading all those books
3: yeah and also i'll I'll be a cool science radio listener with the other curious lay people that we have on the program but but i have uh you know a number of sources and i still have friends at nasa and i i keep keep up with the different programs and those sorts of things so that's been fun
0: you know over the years john we have talked to a number of people whose role it is within their scientific community to communicate science to lay people. It feels like it's almost a new part of industry when scientific research realizes needs to be a priority, is we do this research we're scientists, we're experts, but we don't know how to communicate it to lay people. And so we've been fortunate enough to talk to a lot of those people who have been tasked with communicating it. I mean, in all the years that you've heard people commenting on the show in Park City, what do you think, you know, turns people on to science?
3: Wow, that's a good question. I think that there are some heady subjects out there, and the Michio Kakus of the world, he's a particle physicist who does a really good job in communicating what some of these big things mean in quantum and in, in string theory and those sorts of things. I think we're trying to understand that, and people like Michio and people like David Quammen, who who was on our show probably three times, maybe four times. They're just uh, wonderful at explaining science and helping us understand. And and David Quammen was. One of our favorite guests. He's someone that you and I both got to know. He's our neighbor in uh, Montana. But for all the stuff that he did, the thing that just blew my mind was in 2012 he wrote a book called Spillover. COVID hit in what 2019. The opening paragraph of the opening chapter in that book, and I'll just paraphrase, but I've I've read this paragraph so many times I've got it pretty good. The opening was something's coming. It's going to be big. It's not coming from outer space. It's probably coming from a lab in China, around Wuhan. It's going to be respiratory in nature. It's going to kill over a million people. And it's going to change our world. And he basically laid out COVID in 2012. I mean, he was traveling around the world talking to scientists and trying to understand why Ebola was was contained the three West African countries and why it didn't spread more. And, and the reason we found out was because it killed the host before it had a chance to spread. It was such a horrible disease. But people like David Kwaman, I think, excite us and interest us. and And we want to go out and we want to learn more. And that's hopefully a role that some of these other science programs and cool science radio, perhaps, you know, can play.
0: Yes, David Quammen, anyhow, he says, I wish I hadn't been right about that, but he was, and he continues to write. I think we most recently interviewed him in the last six or eight months. Now, there's a guy who goes around the world condensing what he's hearing from scientists. So he's not doing the research, the scientific research, but he is condensing, coalescing all of the information that he gets and putting it together, as you said in the beginning, in this big picture sense so that we can all understand it. You compare him to someone like Michio Kaku, who is the particle physicist, who is the one. He also has a gift in communication. Another thing that we did in Cool Science Radio, and Katie and I have continued to do this, and we find these female scientists playing a huge role in the not only the advancement advancement of science, but in the communication and turning people on, especially young women, to science. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: You know, back to Dahlia very quickly. Uh, besides all of her responsibilities, she spends I don't know what percentage of her time, but there's a pretty good chunk of her time in working with uh, young women and encouraging them and and bringing them along. And I think that's pretty good. I think uh, Dr. Nicola Fox, who used to run heliophysics for NASA, who is now the NASA administrator, they call her the top scientist, and she's responsible for the budget. She works directly for Bill Nelson. The thing that I loved about the David McCulloch interview, and there have been many biographies on the Wright brothers, but his biography really shone a light on a Wilbur and Orville's sister, Catherine, and the role that she played in making the Wright brothers successful. She ran the bike shop. She let them bounce ideas off her. She organized their engineering notes. She offered encouragement when everything was terrible. She was important. I think that all you have to do, if you're a young girl and you listen to Dalio or Nicola Fox or uh, Anna Lemke, who wrote Dopamine Nation, she also runs the Institute for for Addiction at Stanford University, all a young woman has to do is to listen to these people talk with the passion that they have and with the opportunities that have been presented to them and that they have earned It just raises a bar, and I think that tide rises, and and those boats go up, and they fly off on their own.
1: Well, John, did you have a favorite guest? I know that I always loved listening to you talk to Neil deGrasse Tyson, but I'm not going to assume that that was your favorite.
3: You know, there were so many. There was David Quammen, uh, the International Space Station show that we did, Lynn, with Shane Kimbrough and Mark Vande with my little friend, Sophie O'Connor, my little nine-year-old science nut from uh, Trailside Elementary in Park City. Michael Selstead from Oren, he's the microbiologist that made this random observation that there are family members with us and the humans, big apes that do not get autoimmune disease because they have a certain protein that we don't have. So they synthesize that protein. It's going through testing right now through, through the FDA, but there's a possibility that it's going to be able to offer relief to people with rheumatoid arthritis and, and all of that. And, and, and Lynn, you had that great contact at Scientific American, all those folks that you brought on. And, and if you recall that show that we did on autoimmune diseases, I mean, there's over 140 autoimmune diseases. And I think there are even more, you know, colitis and Crohn's and I mean, all of these diseases, Scientific American really did a great job with, with that subject and many other subjects. I, I think it's the oldest magazine in the country, isn't it?
0: Scientific American is the oldest, the longest running magazine in the country. And I think the second in the world. You know you talked right in the beginning of this interview about you felt like science was getting beat up 10 years later it's still getting beat up there's some pretty crazy theories out there that are replacing what has been known to be well researched peer-reviewed science you know you produced this show for a long time and how you went about making certain that the guests that we had on were those scientists they were the peer-reviewed scientists. They were the scientists that were really making a huge difference in the advancement and not doing what a lot of people are doing, which is moving us backward.
3: Right, exactly. I'm not sure what to say about that other than the scientific prof- process. It's not perfect, but it boy, does it work well. And the thing that fascinates me is when a scientist has a bunch of data and they take that data and they decide to base a theory on it. In the scientific process, the next thing they do is that they do everything that they can to disprove their own theory. Part of our humanness is bias, confirmation biases that, that get in the way. And, and when a scientist comes out with data, and they come out with a theory, and they've tried everything, and they can't disprove it, and they decide to bring it out to the world. If somebody finds out that they were messing with the data, the data's wrong, they may never work again. I mean, that's how serious it is in the scientific community. So if you're going to put something out there which is uh, full of rhetoric and is is not true, you're going to pay a price. Now, the pundits in these different news shows that we watch – they don't pay any price at all. They, they just go out there and they just present the information that they're producers or that they want to produce. And there's nobody does diligence. There's no way of being able to scrub it. And the thing that I remember you and I talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson about when we spoke to him about one of his books, I think it was Starry Messenger, this whole scientific process, what if you took that out of the lab and you brought that to today's problems bring it out to the real world and i think and uh, you know it's sort of pollyanna but facts are important and the scientific process is based on facts if we brought that process out and started applying that to our our real problems then maybe we could uh, you know start agreeing on some stuff
0: katie and i interviewed someone recently and he said something, I'm forgetting his name now, but I don't forget what he said to us about changing your mind that you need, that your mind needs to be changed incrementally by mm. applying the scientific process to yes. it. So maybe you have this long, hard held belief about XYZ, yeah. but you need to open your mind enough and apply the scientific process to it, thinking, I could be wrong about this. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, allow yourself to incrementally find truths that it may co- confirm what you already believe, but it may change your mind too.
3: And they've, they've proven this so many times. that they've, they've run these battery of tests and, and things uh, with different groups of people that if you really believe something and somebody presents something which is counter, and to your point, not incrementally little pieces of information but they say you're no you're wrong and here's why then people dig their heels in and they will not change their mind so maybe the incremental is an approach that that would work
0: well jw we're just about out of time and i know you had a few things that you wanted to say let me just say that it has been such a pleasure co-hosting this show with you over the last decade. We have had so much fun. We have learned so much. And your enthusiasm for science has really rubbed off on me in the biggest and greatest of ways. So thank you.
3: Well, thank you. And and the way you ask questions and the way we work together. I mean, it was really, it was a show, but it was also it, it was a relationship that we had to go on this journey together to find out all this stuff. I think that the last thing that I wanted to say was that I'm just fascinated about how technology moves forward and the speed that it moves forward. The Wright brothers uh, flew the Wright Flyer in 1904, and 65 years later, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. This past summer, I was on an Airbus A380 with my family. We went to Budapest. And that thing first flew in 2005, which was 101 years after the Wright Brothers flyer. The Airbus holds 853 passengers versus the flyer was one person. The flyer had a 604 pounds for a takeoff weight. The Airbus was 560 tons. That's 1.2 million pounds. And the Wright Brothers plane was 30 miles an hour, and the Airbus goes at 737 miles per hour. So that technology just it, just it just really moves quickly, and not always for the better, because the last battle of the Civil War was at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia in 1865. The battle was fought with cannon rifle and bayonet. There were 600 Union and Confederate soldiers that died, and 80 years later, the last days of World War II was Nagasaki and Hiroshima, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people killed. And then back to the Wright brothers, the cannons in Appomattox were brought by horse and these nuclear devices were brought by a B-29 superfortress bomber. So when people sit around and talk about AI, the one thing I would say is we are woefully poor at predicting the future. Everything happens so much faster than we could ever have imagined. And when you think about AI, just think about that. Mm -hmm. It's gonna happen quick for better or for worse.
0: That's right. And that's why we all need to tune in instead of live in denial about it because it is scary and it is moving so fast. And I think that's part of the reason that we are perhaps a little put off sometimes by technology is the the sheer rapidity of how how it goes along is is scary to us hoping that your decade here at cool science radio i mean i know this because i've heard it from people around town is how much your passion and your interest and your curiosity is like a childlike curiosity which why do we call it childlike because we all ought to have that same curiosity It's a sense of
3: wonder Well, i've loved it lynn and you have the same thing and you know god bless and i'm going to continue to listen in and we'll see what happens
0: well john wells after a decade of co-hosting cool science radio off to new endeavors oh do you want to just share with us quickly what what you're off doing now
3: well i'm i'm playing a little more golf i'm hiking a bit more traveling more i just started playing pickleball good luck with that and spending more time traveling it's nice
0: John Wells, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio, and we will see you around.
3: You certainly will. Thank you.
0: Aw, I'm going to miss that guy. But he has several more interviews that you'll hear from him, including one, a final one with Neil deGrasse Tyson in a couple of weeks. Thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City